Last week about this time, I was driving through southern Ohio. I think I was circling Columbus, and I looked at the clock, and it said about 10.28, and I said, ah, oh, they're just about to get started. And I um, was praying for you all here and heard some really good reports. Thank you to uh, Katrina for preaching last week and to our worship team, uh, those who were part of it last week, and uh, just really thankful that uh, though I am not present in the body, um, I can be present in spirit, right? Um, that sounds scriptural somewhere. And, um, but also that things carry on here in such a powerful and, and wonderful way. So. But it is good to be back with you. Our Bible quizzers did a, a great job last week, and uh, hopefully you have seen some of their results. And pull them aside, congratulate them. We also had a great time last night. Uh, for those of you that were able to be here and be a part of that, the the community room was transformed into a nice place, and uh, the, the quizzers and the kids did a great job of serving tables, and, and then we had a great movie time in here, so it's been a, it's been a good week. Um, I don't know about you, probably a lot of things going on this week. We had that massive windstorm this week, and uh, certainly uh, the State of the Union address on Tuesday night, and lots of things going on all around us. So I don't know what brings what you come in here this morning with. I don't know where you're at in your own journey. But as we gather this morning, um, we do come with a purpose, we do come with a focus, and I encourage you this morning to center, in spite of all that's going on around you, in spite of all the things you came in here with, to take a few minutes as I get started this morning to just remind yourself, why are we here today? Why are we here? Why did you come in the doors this morning? It is a good place to be together. Hopefully you got a bulletin, and in the bulletin you can follow along with the sermon. There are some fill-ins if um, you would like, and uh, I'll reference the handout uh, in the middle, the blue piece of paper toward the end of the message today. We are uh, working through a series that we have titled, um, Doomed to Repeat. And this series is looking at the story of the Exodus and the people of of Israel, the Hebrew people, and their story of how God led them out of Egypt into the Promised Land. The, The wrinkle with our story is that we've been working backwards. We started with them entering the Promised Land, and now we have been working our way progressively back through the story, um, partly to learn a little bit about how they interacted with God, how God interacted with them. But we started with the end, sort of being reminded of God's goodness and his faithfulness. And we've been working back to figure out uh, why that was necessary and and what happened in their journey along the way. I've titled today's message, as you can see up there, it's called Unraveled by Doubt. And we are going to be coming today from Numbers 13 and 14. You can follow along on the YouVersion Bible app if you'd like to. Uh, Our scriptures are in there and you can also follow along in there. Uh, But it will all be up on the screen for you as well. Uh, A key thought that I'd like for you to to think about as we get started this morning is this. Uh, Your doubts, anybody have doubts? Anybody think of some things that they struggle with this week? Your doubts and your fears don't change who God is. And they don't change how much God loves and understands you. So just keep that in mind as we work through this story today. 
It started to unravel with a doubt. A doubt that was rooted in fear. The enemy was big. They had seen the enemy. But fear made the enemy a little bigger. In fact, fear made the enemy almost mythical. The land was good, flowing with milk and honey. And they had brought back evidence. It was as God had suggested. But fear of that mythical enemy made the land a land that devours its inhabitants. And I ask you this morning, have you ever been there? Have you ever been to a place where you're staring something really good right in the face and you begin to question it? You begin to doubt it because of what other people start to say about it or maybe because of what you yourself have seen or are perceiving. Have your fears and your doubts begun to override the good thing that is staring you right in the face? One of our greatest obstacles in life is not our actual circumstances, but our perception of them. You know, as Christians, we have the privilege of a different view. It's one where a view where perfect love drives out all fear. It's a view that says that we have been, not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so the question for us today becomes, how does reality and our confidence in God unravel so quickly? How does that spirit of power and of love devolve into inaction and even rebellion against God? I think it starts with the seeds of doubt. A seed of doubt is a powerful force, especially in a large group. It turned today's story that we're going to be reading about into what should have been preparation for conquest and victory into bitter disappointment, pain, and even grief for many. But for the intercession, as you heard about earlier, but for the intercession of a few and the fervent prayers of those few, the story of Exodus could have ended right here in this story today. In fact, God even says that if you read in Numbers 14. He's so upset at the response of the people. He tells Moses, let me just wipe them out. Let me just take them out. I'll start over with you, Moses. It could have ended, but for the prayers of a few. We're going to be looking at the spy narrative. Uh, I'm not talking James Bond here, right? I'm not talking Tom Clancy. Uh, I'm not talking, you know, like 
inter, there's plot line, you know, it's not multiple plot lines, it's just, this is the spy narrative, this is what it's called, because in the beginning of Numbers chapter 13, God asks Moses to send out some spies to look at the land that they're about to inhabit. So, by way of context, this story is happening at the tail end of about a year's worth of time that they have spent coming out of Egypt. You'll remember just a little bit of time ago, the, the plagues in Egypt and God demonstrating His power. And then they come through and out and through the Red Sea and God parts the Red Sea and, and there's that moment in time when the pillars of fire are all surrounding them. And then there's the devastation of the Egyptian army and God proving Himself to Pharaoh one more time. And then, of course, they're at the base of Mount Sinai and there's that time where they make the golden calf and... Uh, About 3,000 people are killed by the Levites because of the backlash that happened around that. And Oh, let's not forget the Ten Commandments happened in this year's worth of time, right? God, the finger of God, writing the tablets and, and giving them to the people. So this is the context. They've spent about a year. And they're at the beginning, they're at the end of that time, but they're at the beginning of the opportunity to enter into the promised land. They're on the southern edge of the territory that they're about to take, or that God was about to give them, right? We've, we've talked about that. And God says, I want you to send out some spies. Now, it'd be, it's interesting to just do a little mental gymnastics, like why would God say send out spies to look at the land? not really clear. I mean, it's not that Scripture necessarily explains it. We would have to sort of piece it together a little bit. Why did God send spies into the land? Well, I think you'll kind of see why maybe as we work our way through the narrative. But just keep this thought in mind that God is consistently trying to test us, try us, reveal things to ourselves, to us and about who we are and how we relate to him. But he says, send out 12 spies. You can imagine the excitement, the energy. We're ready to take the promised land. This has been a long time in coming, right? And all the stuff that has happened and everything, we're ready to take the land. And these spies go out and they spend about 40 days wandering different places in the territory. So after 40 days, they come back and the people are ready to get their report. Kind of reminds me of Robert Mueller and a certain report that's kind of sitting out there right now. Everybody's waiting to hear what's coming down the... Well, not everybody. Some people are waiting to hear what's coming down the pike, right? They're waiting. They're waiting for this report that's about to be delivered. They're excited. So here's what they say. Verse 27. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. They brought some stuff back to show. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Okay, so they're still reporting. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. It's a fairly straightforward account. No frills, uh, mostly just what they saw, with evidence to prove 
that the land contains what God had promised it would contain. It's fruitful. It's bountiful. It could sustain them for many years to come, their family and generations to come. And then one man steps forward and he says, the land is good. Let's go take it. We can do this. One man. He's excited. He sees opportunity. His name is Caleb. He is a descendant, it says in the earlier part of Numbers 13, of the tribe of Judah. And Caleb is excited. Yes, he's seen this report. He was with them and he says, let's go get her done. Let's get in there and get this job done because I can't wait to go see what God has for us. Now, interestingly enough, there is... How many of you know in the Bible there are stories within stories? Anybody know that? Like, if you're going to really dig into the Bible, you've got to get underneath a little bit. Sometimes the story is great. You can learn a lot from just reading the story. But there are stories within stories. And I'm not going to get into it, but I, I do encourage you to go look a little bit at the story here between Caleb, who it says in Numbers 13 was just one of the spies. No reference to Joshua yet. Not until Numbers 14 do we hear that Joshua also was brought in. You see that little statement that says, we should go do this, let's get it done, by Caleb, has come under significant scrutiny by scholars over many years. Because there's this thought that maybe Numbers 13 and 14 was not one story, but maybe two pieced together. And the reason that they had to piece two of them together is because this story was written down maybe in the middle of the first century. And it was written down at the time when Israel needed some hope. And the southern kingdom, Judah, was looking really good because they hadn't, been, uh, they hadn't gotten taken over and all that sort of thing. And, but the northern kingdom kind of was separate from God and they had rebelled against God and they had gotten taken over. And there's this thought that maybe Numbers 14 was added in later to bring in Joshua, who was a descendant of the tribe of Ephraim, which would have represented the northern kingdom. So there's this thought that maybe something's going on there in the interplay of the representation of who loved God the most. Story within a story. I can't go into more of that because it'll take us way offline, but study that a little bit. Read about that. It's a fascinating aspect. But, suffice it to say, Caleb is referenced in Numbers 13 as the one who says, we can get this done, let's go do it. And the others stand up and they say, hold on, wait a second, we can't do that. You saw who those people are. In fact, here's what they say. The people gave the, a bad account to Moses. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. Interesting that they had gone into it and come back and been unscathed, right? But the, the land devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. First reference here to the Nephilim. The writer here kind of explains they were the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. The report that comes back goes very quickly from description to comparison. Super quick. 
from reporting the news to editorializing in a matter of moments. And of, record, and of course, we all know this to be true, don't we? Your news sources will color your views. Do I need to say more about that? I think I'll just let that one alone. As is inevitable with news sources, the editorializing embellished the report, drawing in the name of the Nephilim, which were believed at the time to be somewhat mythical people having partly descended from fallen angels. Not only are they big, now they're mythically big. They are now making up a story that goes way beyond what was initially reported. A land flowing with milk and honey becomes a land that devours its inhabitants. They had just gone in, like I said. They had just come out alive. But now the thought, the prospect of entering the land to take it seemed impossible. The seeds of doubt had taken root. God had become secondary to what they rationalized as practical considerations. There's one thing that stands in the way of so much of Western Christianity. It's the rationalization that goes on in our hearts and in our lives because of the way we've been conditioned to trust in science and to trust in what we see. But it's not new. That's always been the predisposition of the human heart to trust in ourselves more than we trust in God. My question is, what were they afraid of? People. Powerful-looking people. The perception of those people and the stories of what they had heard passed down through the ages. What are we most often afraid of in our lives? People. What they think. What we perceive that they can do to us, or how they can make us feel. And our eyes are taken off of Jesus. Why do I fear people? Why do I try to please people? Why do I try to get along with people so much that it ties me up in knots and causes me to lose my focus? Those were legitimate questions on my heart. That's a legitimate journey that I personally am on as someone who is predisposed to be a people pleaser. Jesus would say it this way in Matthew 10:28, "Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul; rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell." In other words, keep your focus on me. God, Jesus, don't be distracted. The people had become consumed with the world around them. What they could see, what they could taste, what they could touch, what they could smell, what they could feel and hear. They relied on their senses to survive. 
God had made the grandest of gestures to them with the Exodus narrative. By bringing them out of Egypt, he was telling them how much he cared about them, how much he loved them, how much he would be with them and protect them. He said, trust me. He says to you, trust me. But it doesn't compute. It didn't compute to them, and they rebelled. And a whole generation died without seeing the promised land. I was reading something this week, and the author said it this way. He said, it was easy, easy for God to get his people out of Egypt. The difficult part was to get Egypt out of his people. You see, sometimes we're so conditioned, so trained by our habits, by our patterns of thinking, by our cultural views, that to put trust in God almost seems childless. Childish, I'm sorry. It's impractical. It's unwise. And to be sure, sometimes it is unwise because of the way we frame it. See, on the one hand, some of us are predisposed to frame it this way. It is all about God and not about me. So I'm just going to watch him do things and kind of passively wait for him to guide me. And the other extreme is it's all about me, like he's given me all this stuff and I should do something with it and just wait for him to follow along and kind of bless it. And we kind of make this framing at either end an extreme. But it's neither of those. You see, our relationship with God is one of partnership. It's one of mutual love, of mutual respect, where our efforts combine with God's grace and we grow in trust because of His abundance and His love. Of course we have a will. Of course we have perspective and background and history and teaching and training. But like Caleb, what made Caleb different? Caleb saw those same mythical people that the other spies had seen. But Caleb said, God is with us. We can do it. God is with us. Emmanuel. We can do it. Where the caution comes in is when our senses lead us to doubt God's faithfulness or lead us to not trust in His goodness. Who do we defer to in those situations? There's a choice. There's a choice and we make it. Unlike the Hebrew people who had a physical home promised to them along the Mediterranean Sea, we live in a different time. We live under a different covenant. And for us, God has revealed already His kingdom through His Son. Our eternal home is with Jesus Christ, here in this life and forever in eternity. So, what do we learn from this stubborn and untrusting people who were chastened for their rebellion with a long time of wandering in the desert? What do we learn? First of all, I want us to understand that everything we learn is couched in this, 
that God never changes. He is immutable. That word means never changes. So the things that we see God doing with His people in the Old Testament are the same things we can rely on and learn from in our day and age as well. God never changes. He is one God, eternally existent. Three persons. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be on the earth to live in the flesh. His Son died sinless. But He rose again for our salvation. He is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. That same God, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the aid that we have called the Holy Spirit, that mystical, mysterious union of the Trinity, we call it, is the same, in, says Hebrew, the, the writer of Hebrews, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is the God that we serve. He does not change. Please hold on to that. Great changes in our church, I'm saying the grand Christian church, happened throughout the ages because some people chose to believe differently than that. And the church divided over it. But we've held on through the ages to that core principle and that core belief. One God, three persons, sent His Son Jesus Christ. We now live with the aid of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. We don't fully understand it, but it exists and we believe it. So this is the same God that we're going to talk about for a couple of minutes. Number one, God is trustworthy. What do we learn from this people and how God interacted with His people? God wanted him to trust, wanted them to trust Him. He is trustworthy. He promised them a land. He said He would give it to them. And we saw in the first sermon of this series that He ultimately did. He gave them the promised land. They did enter into it. So what does that look like for us today when we say God is trustworthy? It's not like we're looking for land along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, right? What are we looking for? What, ha- what is this? How does this apply to us? Think about your life and think about the ways that you feel like you've been blessed over your lifetime. The ways that God has really invested in you and you've felt His presence and His closeness and what He's done for you. And then all of a sudden, maybe you lose your job. How am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to pay my bills and put food on the table? And how am I going to take care for, of my kids? Maybe, maybe a relationship falls apart. Maybe it's a divorce or a breakdown in your marriage of somehow. And you're like, how can I go forward? Maybe you get sick. Or a loved one gets sick. And the doctors can't figure out what's going on. And you're staring this huge illness in the face and you're like, what's this about God? Maybe you want to go to college and you just don't know how. You don't know where the money's coming from. You don't know how you're going to get there, but you know you've got some talent, you know you've got some abilities, and you want to go to college and you're like, I don't know. I don't see how that's going to happen. Maybe the losses and the pain in your life have left you standing on the edge. What's the next shoe that's going to drop in my life? You 
can't really live life to its fullest to enjoy it. Maybe, maybe your kids kind of going off the deep end a little bit, kind of screwing up. I, I don't know, God. I don't know how to help them. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to bring them back, Lord. I'm losing them. Those are the kinds of giants in our lives where the doubts begin to creep in, where the fears settle in, and those problems begin to take on mythical proportions like, I don't know how God's going to help me through this stuff. We can't do this. You know, God wasn't asking His people to figure out how to take the land. He didn't send spies into the land to have them scouted out so they could figure out a military strategy. Back to that question, why did God send spies into the land? Was it a military strategy? I don't think so. I think God asked Moses to send spies into the land so that they could see what they were about to take and recognize that in spite of what they saw, God was going to give them this. It was a time to celebrate. Look what God's going to give to us. And, and they took it upon themselves to say, I don't think we can do this. God is trustworthy. God wanted them to see His character, not their circumstances. In fact, would, they, would, would God lead them out of Egypt just to slaughter them? That was one of their questions. Like, why, God, why did you lead us here if you're just going to wipe us out now? Would God do that? No, God wouldn't do that. But when you're staring doubt and fear in the face, it kind of looks like it. Because we don't see the end from the beginning. But that's why we have some of these stories in the Bible, because we do see the end. And those ends help us to have trust and faith in a God who is good, who will get us through to the end. And we can take comfort that God loves us. In the same way, your circumstances do not define what or who God is, or what He's capable of. In the New Testament, we don't find promises that we won't experience hardship or trial. We do believe in the same God who loves us so much that He won't leave us alone in the midst of those circumstances. He's not going to leave you alone. In fact, He promises in Matthew 28.20, He says, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's who we have. That's the same God that was with the Israelites coming out of the Exodus. That's the God that you and I serve. He is with us and He will be with us. When you're facing those challenges in your life, He can heal you. He is able to do that. He may not do that. We don't know how He will handle all situations and struggles and circumstances in our lives. But we do know that He will be with us. He will sustain us. He can heal us and sustain us. He can do one or the other. He can do both. But what we can't do is doubt that His pattern throughout history was to love and keep 
his people throughout, through it all. When we come to a place of complete trust, irregardless of our circumstances, we experience God in a whole new way. Our circumstances, what we see, they should pale in comparison to our love and our trust in God. But what happens, the process of slipping away always begins with taking our eyes off of God and putting it on our circumstances. No, we shouldn't always assume that everything is going to work out good by our definition, right? Paul does say all things work together for good, but that good might have a spiritual ramification, not just a physical or personal experiential ramification. We don't overemphasize Scripture for us personally. We look at it in the context of how God is speaking to a people corporately. And God can and will work all situations for good, some of them eternally and some of them for us in our time and in our day. But again, our promise is that God will be with us. Our promise is that we can resist temptation. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. No temptation has to overtake you. That's a promise that we can stand on. Our promise is what we see in Jesus. He defeated death. He rose again. We no longer have to fear death. The early church, the church in the couple of hundred years right after Jesus was taken back up into heaven, they were so convinced that they stood in the face of death And they welcomed it. Much like Paul who said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. The early church fathers and mothers like Justin Martyr and Perpetua and Felicitas said that you can kill us, but you can't defeat us. In fact, there's a great story. One of the early Christian martyrs, her name was Perpetua. She lived in Carthage in North Africa at the turn of the 3rd century. She's newly married. She's a a young 20, about 22. She had just given birth to her first child. And she and a few of her fellow, what they called catechumens, those who were learning the ways of the cross, they were arrested because they were considered atheists. Interesting, right? Her atheism was actually an offense to the Roman emperor because she believed in Jesus Christ. Her atheism was exactly the opposite of how we define atheism today. But her approach to death was so gracious and committed that her story was written down so that it would encourage all of us to this day. At one point, she says to her father, who was desperately trying to get her to recant, she says, It will all happen in the prisoner's dock as as God wills. For you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but are all in his power. The story goes on to account her experience in prison and the several different ways that they tried to kill her. None of them worked. 
Finally, when all of them didn't work, they ended up having to use a sword on her. But even that didn't work until she took hold of that sword, it says, and held it to her throat and says, take my life because I'm going to see my Maker. I'm going to see Jesus. It was as if God was, Jesus was with her in that moment, so present that they couldn't even take her life until she gave permission for it. But she was so willing to do it because she loved Jesus that death didn't stand as a deterrent to her. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Maybe we've slipped a little bit. Maybe we have fallen a little bit. Maybe we have taken our eyes off of Jesus. This is another thing that we can learn if you were to read into Numbers 14. I'm not going to dig into that too much today. I encourage you to do it on your own. But you will see and learn about a God who desires to relent and show mercy. He is a God who loves. Yes, He is holy. But He loves And he wants to show mercy. He is a God slow to anger and abounding in love. It's your will in partnership with his, not his overriding yours. In other words, don't ask him to do something in you that you are not willing to do. How many times have we prayed that? God, help me to do this, help me to do this, help me to do this. But in reality, we're not really willing to do it ourselves. God's not going to override your will. He can. You just might find yourself in the desert trying to figure it out, right? God can override your will, but He doesn't want to. He wants your will to want Him, to be in partnership with Him. Let's not miss opportunities because our hearts grow hard toward Him. We need to trust like Caleb. It's another thing we can take away from this story. He saw what was in front of him and he said, we can do it. Because God is with us. And I asked myself the question, where does that trust come from? Where did did Caleb learn to trust just like that? How many of you find that easy? To trust like Caleb, right? Looking at all the circumstances of your life and saying, we can do it. God's with us. We don't find that very easy. Three things that I kind of think happened in Caleb's life. Number one, he was observing. He observed all that God was doing for them all throughout the exodus from Egypt. He observed and he was listening and he was learning and he was processing and he was looking at Moses in his life and he was, he observed. And he said, God did all of that? I think God could do anything. And I'm guessing that he meditated on God's word. I'm guessing that he hid God's word in his heart. I'm guessing he was quoting things that were going on throughout that story and he was hiding God's word in his heart and he was meditating on what God had done for him and then ultimately it came to a choice. He had to put his faith into practice. Did he believe? Did he have faith? 
we choose to believe and our faith grows once we make that decision. Just remember this, God's timing is perfect and purposeful even if it's uncomfortable. I'm almost done. Second Peter 3, 8, and 9 says this, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You know, it's easy to take a story like this, and there's so much more we could dig into. It's easy to take a story like this and just make it about my circumstances, a situation in my life that I'm facing, a story in my life, a circumstance, and I listed some of those that look like giants in my life. But I want us to take one step back, if you would, just with me, and just ponder for a second that this narrative, this Exodus narrative, represents the grand, the big narrative of your life. The promised land being that relationship with Jesus Christ. The promised land being that kingdom of God. And how many times in your life do you come up against situations or pushback against, from people who are dis, trying to tear you away from that life, that commitment, that promise, of the kingdom of God. It's not just about your circumstances. It's about your relationship with God. What obstacles are you facing that challenge your faith or cause you to doubt or cause you to question or are, lift, are causing fears to rise up within you? Has your faith been shaken in some way? How do you handle criticism of your faith when you're in school, when you're at work, when you're in the marketplace? How do you handle a culture that presses in against your faith? Do you begin to doubt? Do fears rise up because of the people and what they're going to do? Seeds of doubt, they take root with fear. The people started to grumble and complain and ultimately they pointed a finger at God and said, why are we here? Why would you do this to us? The seeds of doubt led to rebellion. We don't want that to be our story. We don't want those seeds of doubt to turn into fear that turns into Rebellion. Can we learn to rejoice with Paul that in any and every situation he was content because of the knowledge that Jesus Christ has come and our future is secure? If we're focused more on the giants, the struggles in our life, than in loving a powerful God who promises to be with us, then we need to take some time this morning to reflect so, I end with five R's to right relationship with God. The first one I had is to take a step back. So, I had to go with recoil because it needed to be five R's. So, 
take a step back, right? Recoil. What's going on in my life? What am I doubting? What are, where are my fears? Take a step back to get a little bit of the bigger picture. And then reevaluate what's going on with those circumstances. Reevaluate how I'm responding, how I'm reacting to those situations. Am I rooted in faith and trust in God, or am I looking at my circumstances as being overwhelming and impossible? And then take some time to repent. Repent. Get on your knees before God and say, God, I'm sorry. I've taken my eyes off of you. I don't trust you the way I once did. You've been nothing but faithful to me. You've been nothing but good to me. And I'm sorry. And I want it to be different. I want my life to be different. I want to be rooted in faith and trust. And as you do, you begin to refocus. Refocus with a, an eye to Him. It's no longer eyes on the people, but an eye to God and to Jesus Christ. And through that process, then we reconnect. Reconnection. Today I just want to leave you with those thoughts. And this one final thought. We serve... We serve a God abounding in love. He truly wants you to know Him for who He is. I said I would come back to this. As I was putting together this message, there was so much more I wanted to talk about. It's already been long, and I thank you for bearing with it. But I put down these thoughts here for you to do some personal study and personal reflection. The spy narrative, Numbers 13 and 14, is really a a hinge couple of chapters in the Pentateuch or the Torah, that, that first five books of the Old Testament. It's a hinge part of the story. And there's a lot in there that we could unpack. So if you're in a life group, use this as a as a seed discussion starter. If you're on your own, just begin to look up these scriptures and Do a little bit more digging. There's a lot, a lot in there. And it's really, really good stuff. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and they're just going to give us a few minutes to reflect. There are cards in the back of your chairs or in the chairs in front of you. And those cards are an opportunity for you to connect with us. If you've never given us your contact information, please do that. We would love to follow up with you. We would love to to share what's going on in the life of our church. So if you have an email address, give it to us. We send out things throughout the week, and it's just a way to connect with us. On one side of that card is an opportunity for you to write down some prayer requests. And we love to pray with you for those requests. Sometimes it's a prayer request, and if there's a praise note, if there's an answer to prayer, we would also love to see and hear that as well. So this is an opportunity for you to prepare a prayer card or a connection card, and also to prepare a tithe or an offering. We have baskets that are up here on the altar. Our ushers also stand in the back at the end of our service. And if you have a gift, a tithe or an offering that you'd like to give to the Lord today, this is your opportunity to do that as well. It's good to be together. It's good to be with you. It's good to be back.
And it's good to learn and study and, and hear these truths from God's Word. I pray that they encourage your heart today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your unchanging nature. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you, God, for the opportunity to connect, to be challenged, maybe, to be encouraged, hopefully, to refocus and reconnect with you today. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you are working in each of us to root out those doubts and to root out those fears. Maybe our circumstances won't change, God, but we want to trust you in the middle of them and to love you and to worship you and to praise you despite not seeing the end from the beginning. So Lord, empower us and strengthen us today so that the doubts don't confuse us with who you really are. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.